0: After a decade of growth, there were 10 million electric cars on the world's roads by the end of 2020. According to the International Energy Agency's annual electric vehicle outlook, electric car registrations increased by 41%. This is despite the pandemic, which reduced overall global car sales by 16%. Around 3 million electric cars were sold globally, which represents a little under
1: 5% of the total. Electric bus and truck registrations also grew, raising
0: the number globally to 600,000 and 31,000 respectively. Also in 2020, vehicle manufacturers announced increasingly ambitious electrification plans, with 18 of the top 20 announcing plans to rapidly scale up production and expand ranges. 2021 arrived
1: and the first quarter saw sales jump by 140% versus the previous year. And the coming years look set to deliver impressive growth with 145 million electric vehicles on the road in 2030 under projections based on
0: stated government policy intentions. Under the International Energy Agency's own Sustainable Development Scenario, a proposed major transformation of the global energy system, in which the world changes course to deliver on the three main energy-related sustainable development goals simultaneously. The target size for the global EV fleet is 230 million in that scenario. Or 12% of the total market, even with the recent and expected successes,
1: Meeting these numbers will be a huge challenge. If the world is to electrify, it will require government support. It will require costs to come down.
0: And it will need improvements in battery technology. Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Konecker. And I'm Tim Sheehan. In this episode, we are looking at a startup is hoping to revolutionise the materials we use to build batteries, just in time for the coming boom in demand. The company is called Group 14 Technologies, based near Seattle
1: in the Pacific Northwest. And they are working on a new material that will boost the performance of batteries. And bring about what they call the lithium-silicon battery age. A range of skills has been critical to realising this technology And the man
0: we are speaking to is its co-founder and chief technology officer. A man of extremely broad interests who originally came to the batteries sector because it was in desperate need of his expertise from the pharmaceutical sector. His name is Rick Constantino, and he is in the right place at the right time to change the world.
2: The demand is absolutely huge. It's driven by all all sectors, really, one of the huge demands in terms of volume of of batteries and materials for the batteries are electric vehicles. because you know electric vehicles have have a very, very large requirement for the batteries. but but there's many, many industries. you know everything from your consumer electronics to avionics, medical devices, so there's this across the board, there's this enormous demand for for battery materials. and and sort of in response, Um, We're now at this Cambrian explosion of, of battery technologies.
0: The Cambrian explosion was a sudden proliferation of life in the fossil record. It occurred about 541 million years ago. And basically, it's when early life developed shells. Before this point, it was mostly too squishy to be preserved in the fossil record. Speaking to Rick, you can't help but get the sense of a man deeply interested in
1: multiple scientific disciplines. It goes beyond using the tree of life to describe the potential of the battery market.
2: Well, I've always been uh, very interested in science ever since I was was a child. My mother will tell you that I've always uh, wanted to do all different forms
0: of science. So at one point I wanted to be an oceanographer.
2: At one point I wanted to be an astronomer, etc.
0: Rick started his formal education at the Johns Hopkins University, where he did a bachelor's and master's in chemical engineering.
2: I did work with particular organisms called hyperthermophilic archaeobacteria. And these were these extremely interesting microorganisms uh, that grow in very extreme environments. They're called extremophiles. And this particular extremophile was isolated from a what's called a, a black chimney at the bottom of the ocean, where this basically you have this enormous upswelling of, of heat and energy. And this incredibly rich, sulfur-rich environment where these organisms can can thrive
1: rick and his team looked at harvesting those organisms and seeing if they could be adapted for industrial purposes
2: So, for example we ended up isolating particular enzymes in those organisms that were involved in metabolism of various saccharides and sugars and we actually got some patents actually one of the my first patent on the wall behind me the very first one uh was for a uh amylolytic Enzyme that broke down those more complex sugars into simple ones, and actually, this turned out to have some industrial utility uh, for actually producing some of these kind of these more complex sugars.
0: Rick's patent produced complex sugars for industry, and another team managed to isolate an enzyme that allows scientists to cut apart DNA, which is useful for molecular cloning.
2: So it's pretty interesting in those early days uh, with those those organisms were, uh, and they're still being kind of kind of studied today, and potentially, as you know, looking at you know how could life, for example, thrive in other planets? You know, maybe at these bottom of these oceans and some of these other other worlds. Maybe there's these organisms you know
1: lurking at these environments. Rick's jump to the energy storage sector came while he was working in pharmaceuticals.
2: After my master's work, uh, I moved on to MIT and, and did my PhD at MIT. Uh, where I uh, was co-advised by Alex Klibanoff and, and Bob Langer. And uh, the, the latter um, was was one of the founders, he's one of the founders of Moderna, by the way. So I started my career in pharmaceuticals and I, I sort of did my thesis and my early career on stability of uh, pharmaceuticals, particularly peptide and protein pharmaceuticals, which include antibodies, which include antigens, uh, a lot of antigens, which of course are, are, but for vaccines, which of course is a pretty hot field right now.
0: One of the important aspects of these types of pharmaceuticals is that they are complex, large molecules, and often very fragile. And yet you might want it to be stable for a period of years.
2: And sometimes at extreme temperatures, you you can't always put it in the freezer. Now, of course, if it's something like a pandemic going on, and you don't have a lot of time to optimise a formulation, you know, maybe it's okay to have kind of a a frozen material in that supply chain. That's what we have for some of the, some of the vaccines today, but that's not the most desirable situation. So you really want to have a more stable form. So, so, you know, I did a lot of work studying freeze drying and of course freeze drying allows you to remove the water from that formulation. And a lot of those, those bad reactions that cause those, 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 um, you know, those pharmaceuticals to break down uh, involve water. So you remove the water, you have a dried stable form, just like if you have freeze-dried coffee lasts a lot longer than your coffee mug (laughs) in liquid, right? It's not going to last a day. Freeze-dried coffee can last for for months or years if you store it properly and don't get it wet.
1: Then came his big break. He co-edited a book, The lyophilization of Biopharmaceuticals, with Professor Mike Pickle from the University of Connecticut
2: who since passed away um, great guy and we we wrote this book on freeze drawing and you know we always joke that uh, this it was so much work and we probably maybe make enough money royalties to have dinner maybe once a year <laughs> uh and he was right you know it wasn't a huge money maker but it was very useful for me i'd learned a lot you know i ha- had a lot of help in, in writing all the chapters and um you know that book became you know you know pretty pretty well read
0: and and, and cited around the industry but this brought him to the attention of another rick Rick Luby, who was the CEO at a company called Energy2.
2: He saw my book. And at the time, uh, Energy2 was using freeze drying to make an energy storage material, not a pharmaceutical. And at the time, I was consulting. And I had you know maybe, maybe a dozen projects or so with various pharmaceutical companies. So I heard about this opportunity. And I'm like, hmm, this is kind of interesting, you know, doing something different.
1: Energy2 was using a freeze drying process for their work as well. They were taking a
2: polymer, they were making basically an aqueous solution, freeze-drying that polymer in in a certain way to preserve the the dried polymer structure. They then took the dried polymer and carbonized it to create an energy storage carbon. And the nanostructure of that energy storage carbon was highly dependent on that freeze-drying condition being the right freeze-drying condition, otherwise you got the wrong structure
0: so they really needed to control the freeze-drying process, which was causing some problems. And that's where Rick, Rick Constantino, stepped in. The resulting structure were useful
1: for ultra capacitors, which are capacitors that can be cycled thousands or even millions of times. An extraordinarily good cycle life for an energy storage mechanism.
0: Ultracapacitors can also absorb energy quickly, but can't store a lot of it, there is always this trade-off between properties when it comes to batteries and capacitors.
2: So, for example, in, in electric vehicles, a lot of their brakes will have ultracapacitors. And those, And while you're braking, that energy that, that's created, the friction, and, you know, so you're, you're kind of losing energy when you're braking, and the ultracapacitors can actually help absorb that energy in that very short time that you're braking. It's becoming very widespread now in, in automobiles. So, that's, so ultracapacitors have a really nice niche in those kind of applications.
1: The materials Energy 2 produced were also useful as additives in lead-acid batteries, the kind of battery in a regular fossil fuel car. And it was really
2: interesting. We you know, found out that, I don't know if have, you've ever ridden a car that has kind of a start-stop technology where your, you know, your combustion engine is going, you get to a stop sign or, or a red light, and your engine actually turns off. And when you, when you hit the gas pedal again, it turns on again. Well, that sort of an application is very demanding on, on that lead-acid battery.
1: The carbon additive helped the battery endure the cycling demands placed on it. So that was kind of a big
2: application. So that's kind of how I got started into the energy storage world. So I moved from drug delivery to, to energy delivery, as I call it. And it's, it's really interesting, the analogies that I find between kind of the, the old, my old work and drug delivery with, with now energy energy delivery.
0: Then in 2015 BASF bought out energy 2. It was mostly interested in the mature products, these porous carbon materials, and not so interested in Rick and Rick's work on silicon materials, which still needed a bit of incubation. And Group 14 Technologies was born.
2: With BSF, we said, okay, let's. You know, this isn't. This is a technology that still needs more time to incubate. So let's spin this out. And you know, BSF gave us a, kind of an, an you know initial investment in the form of a convertible note. We also had a, a United States Department of Energy uh, project um, for about four million dollars. This was actually this was our first project. We have a second project now. Um, so our very first project at that time, and that project, they saw our technology, saw it was really promising.
0: But what is the technology? First, we need to understand the components of a regular lithium-ion battery.
2: Batteries have two electrodes, an anode and a cathode, and they, you know, every time you cycle, you're you're essentially shuttling electrons back and forth. And in a lithium-ion battery, you're 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 doing that in the form of, of of lithium ions, which are shuttling back and forth. So you have your anode, your cathode. You have to physically separate those two, so you have a separator which might be some kind of a, a, a porous kind of polymer membrane, um, because you don't want your, you know, if your anode and cathode contact each other, uh, you'll have a short, and actually this can happen with certain types of technologies where you can create dendritic structures um, if, if on, your, on your anode side, for example, that can actually break through the separator.
0: A dendritic structure is a branch or tree-like growth bridging the gap between the anode and the cathode, shorting the battery.
2: So you have anode-cathode separator, and then you have, uh, in, in kind of a traditional lithium ion battery, you have a liquid electrolyte, which is, you know, typically, you know, some kind of an organic phase. And in that organic phase, you have dissolved ions, electrolyte ions. So you have electrolyte, so- electrolyte is composed of the solvent and the ions inside. And of course, you know, you have other components. You have to have your casing around uh, the battery. So those are kind of some, you know, on a very high level, that's sort of the, the components and, and, and how they work.
1: And there has been an enormous amount of research in recent years to improve the cathode and the electrolyte solution. But
2: the last frontier in terms of research for, for lithium ion batteries is, is the anode side, which for decades, the, the, the incumbent material for that has been has been graphite. And there's been some advances in graphite, you know, it's a great material. Um, there's been advances in synthetic graphites and high purity graphites and then coated graphites. But it's only, fairly, only really recently that, that companies are, are, are bridging out, looking at new materials, particularly silicon, for use on,
0: on, on that anode side. Silicon is a highly stable material. It can cycle a few thousand times before a fade in capacity begins to develop. Batteries are typically judged on when they lose about 20% of starting capacity.
2: But the, the, but the weak link about graphite is its ability to store that lithium. Is, is relatively limited. And so the way lithium gets stored in graphite is it intercalates between you know, the graphitic sheets. So there's a particular mechanism it can store, it can store some lithium in there, but just the molecular structure of that, of that carbon, you know, it's, it's limited to how much lithium it can store. So we're, we're looking at, um, and a lot of other companies are looking at, using silicon as a substitute or at least blending with that graphite.
1: And silicon can store ten times the amount of lithium compared to graphite. Group fourteen claims that with a twenty percent blend, energy density can be boosted by thirty percent for over a thousand cycles.
2: So that's tr- trying to sort of strengthen that link, uh, if you will, by blending in you know some silicon material with that graphite, or even displacing the graphite altogether with it with a silicon material. So that would be really that you know kind of that next frontier of improving that last piece of that battery, you know, all those other components being improved and now now we're trying to improve this sort of last frontier which is which is on the anode side and, and replacing that graphite with, with a silicon based anode material.
0: Rick prefers to think of a battery with this silicon blended anode as a lithium silicon battery.
2: To differentiate because the performance is just such a big breakthrough. You know, this is this isn't you know we're not looking for a one or two percent increment here as sort of been the historic trend over the decades, you know, if you, if you get a just a 1% or 2% improvement, you're, you're doing great. And those, those have kind of been the improvements we've been seeing. But now we're ready for a step change that's going to be 10, 20, maybe up to 50% improvement
0: in, in the energy density of the battery. But although silicon has 10 times the lithium capacity of graphite, it expands up to four times its volume when it absorbs this lithium.
2: And so this is something that can be difficult for that battery to handle because every time you expand, you can have lots of, you know, stability issues. Having that lithium uh, being absorbed in the silicon makes it hard for that silicon to have a high cycle life. So it absorbs this, you know, fantastic amount of energy, but instead of lasting, you know, the desired thousand cycles, it's maybe only lasting tens of cycles um, or something like that. So the solution that group 14 has come up with this problem is we've created a composite. Of silicon and carbon in one particle, and so you know our solution is we we our, our product we call SEC fifty five, is our is our product name, and it, it's it's a particle that has comprises both silicon and carbon in in that same particle.
1: It is helpful to think of the particle as a sponge, the porous carbon scaffold that has silicon in the spaces inside the sponge.
2: So we create this these nano sized domains of silicon throughout this micron sized porous carbon particle. And we do that in such a way that we leave inside that particle some void space for that, help that, that silicon can, ex, can absorb some of that expansion within the particle. So you know our particle is is roughly equal mass of silicon and carbon, but in volume terms, it's roughly equal silicon carbon and internal void. So that's kind of our particular technology. And that technology, you know, we have the best of both worlds. We have the high capacity of the silicon. We have the sort of good sort of surface properties and conductivity of a carbon material. It's not it's not it's a, it's a we call a hard carbon, but but it's it's still a carbon. And we have that void to help absorb that that,
0: that expansion on every cycle. Zooming out to the macro world, leaving nanostructures behind, and group 14 has basically created a black powder which it then supplies to battery manufacturers. And depending on which of those properties of the battery they're interested in, capacity, charging speed or cycle life, they can alter the blend accordingly.
2: Each customer has a little bit of a different requirement. You know, one customer might say, I need this enormous boost in energy density and I don't really care about how how fast you can charge. But it's got to be really high energy density. And you have to be able to deliver the. You have to be able to 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 to, to discharge very fast for my application. So, for example,
0: so tool. for example, a power tool or a vacuum cleaner or something like that.
2: Other end of the spectrum, you might have again automotive industry where they're saying, okay, we, we you know, we want we want a modest boost in the energy density, but it has to have a rock solid uh, cycle life and calendar life. And ideally, you could, you'd be able to charge that, charge it very quickly. Discharge can be slow. But the charge has to be quick. So every customer has a little bit of a different kind of requirement.
1: Although a lot of this
0: is down to the battery life itself. Although Rick was brought into the battery sector on the basis of his freeze-drying knowledge, he has also had to reinvent himself. Group 14's production process no longer uses those techniques, but Rick is still excited by the new technology.
2: When we invented SC55, we had an eye towards, let's make this as simple a process as as we can. So we we, we create both the carbon and the silicon, and we do that, each each of those synthesis is, is a single step in a single reactor. So the first step, we create the carbon, and we call that dryrolysis. And it's, it's I guess, somewhat ironic that I, I originally was hired uh, into this industry to, to solve a freeze drying problem, which I did, but then I identified that this is absolutely a very, very expensive and complex way to make a, a porous carbon. So we ended up reinventing this as a solvent-free process.
1: Completely abandoning freeze drying. So anyway, so so
2: we produce the carbon in, in a single step in a single reactor where we, you know, we take raw materials that are readily available and we have a very, very efficient kind of synthesis, you know, to create the carbon from from those from those raw materials to that reactor. We then take that carbon, and then we put it through our second step, which we call silogenesis. And in that step, we take our porous carbon, and then we subject that to a a, a silicon-containing gas, which we thermally decompose inside the pores of the carbon. And the chemical process we call chemical vapor infiltration, uh, where we then create the silicon, we create nano-sized amorphous silicon inside of that porous carbon. And that's really key because getting silicon in that amorphous and nano-sized form that is well-established to be the most stable and kind of the most preferred form of silicon for energy storage applications. And it's, it's difficult to get silicon in that form, but we figured out a way to do this by presenting that, that porous carbon and creating, creating the silicon inside. So two steps, each is a single step, single reactor. Both have sort of readily available raw materials that we can convert at, at you know, very high yields to create our material.
0: Fortunately for changes in a material such as this, the actual battery production process is very adaptable. And a battery gigafactory would require very little in the way of capital changes. The same anode production equipment can still be used.
2: We've designed our material so that there's not a big switching cost. So that, again, our material can drop in. So the way, you know, the way the batteries are made, you, may, you make each electrode. So you're making your anode and you, know, you have an anode line. You have a, a basically a big mixer where you blend typically water and your anode material and, you know, a few other components, binder and conductivity enhancer. You then take that, that slurry and then basically put it on a, a current collector, and, you know, create, create your electrode, which you subsequently will, will then cut and, and, and piece apart as you need to fit into a particular battery. So, you know, our material, we've designed that it can, it can blend into that, that snowy process, either completely displace the graphite and use us instead of graphite, or you can use just a, just a little, just sprinkle as much, you know, as much in as you want, whether it's 10%, 30%, 50%, whatever.
0: For Rick and Group 14, the major remaining challenge is that of scaling.
2: The scale that we're at right now—it's fantastic. We've we've gone up a couple orders of magnitude. Again, we're producing on the order of 120 tons a year, but it, it's it's mind-boggling to think that's only really a drop in the bucket when you start talking about EV, you know, volumes that that it would be necessary for electric vehicles, and you know, those volumes are gonna gonna require another another two orders of magnitude of of scale. We're talking about on the order of 12,000 tons a year scale. And so that's really the next big challenge. And of course we're in the right now in a fundraising mode to raise the money to build that bigger plant. And so that really is the next big challenge is getting to the next scale. But, but we've chosen processes and unit operations that we have a very high confidence are, are very scalable. So our intention is to use our current production right now. We're creating a blueprint right now for what this next plant looks like. And we're going to have that in sort of a modular fashion so we can take that technology and we could build a module here in eastern washington we can put a module in other 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 countries i think it's going to be key to co-locate with that raw material but our challenge now is coming up with this module and and right now we're using our 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 current factory as the blueprint for, for that larger scale
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Tim Sheehan. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own divine spark is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Group 14 Technologies. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.rebeat.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.